Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The Sewer Show. Squatters and unwaged airwaves. Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. Back on the air here at 3CR, this is the Sewer Show, Squatter and Unwaged Airwaves. Um, This is the Food Not Bombs edition of the show and... What we're doing today is we've got a couple of interviews with um, two different people. Um, one with Jess, who is a representative from the Institute for Critical Animal Studies, Oceana, who have a conference that's happening right now at Trades Hall and tomorrow as well. Second interview is with Van Badham, who is a writer, activist, playwright, as well as being a, um, co- a columnist for The Guardian. Um, and that interview is about uh, online you know, social media abuse that... Van has been facing, but also more broadly about, well, things that we'll get into a bit later in the show. We just heard that What's the Score Sport wasn't on. We've got some filler happening at the moment, so we're just sending our best wishes out to Trevor, if you're listening. Um, hope you're feeling okay. So our first interview on the show today is with Jess, who is a representative from the Institute for Critical Animal Studies, Oceana. They have, um, and Jess is one of the organisers for a conference that is on at Trades Hall, Um, today and finishing tomorrow with an opening night event last night. The conference's themes are around conflict and struggle, resistance and change, and the workshops tomorrow that are um, still to go, I guess, um, include topics such as vegan vegan consumerism, um, queering, intersections of violence and feminisms. Um, Registration is from 9am and the welcome is from 9.30 at Trades Hall, so if you like what you hear in the interview and want to get along, then um, you should do so. But um, so the interview is, you know, a bit of history around ICAS and what the conference is about and ways of challenging um, other forms of oppression that are that exist within broader society that manifest themselves within animal liberation type movements. Um, so here is the interview. So how are you doing today, Jess? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries. Thanks for um, speaking to us. So, um, did you want to explain a little bit of what the history of ICAS was for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Uh, ICAS came about really from, uh, you know, in academia there's a lot of animal studies or people just call themselves animal studies and they could be writing about anything. It could be about a, could be about a, an animal caught at the zoo in captivity or it could be about some kind of tree and an animal that lives in that um, and not necessarily having anything to do with wanting to uh, talk about animal liberation or looking at the ways in which animal liberation intersects with other types of um, liberation struggles. So uh, that kind of, you know, from that, not all animal studies was like that, but a large amount of it was. Um, so critical animal studies kind of came out of that because people wanted to find a place 
that where they could be academics and activists or just one or the other but through a, a kind of a critical response to uh, animals to what's happening to anim animals in our world and also to the other kinds of intersectional oppressions that occur um, at the same time as animal exploitation so yeah, it really came out of wanting to make that space in academia and also within activism and it started in america and we've had um ICAS Oceana for uh, this is our third conference so in Oceana we really try to uh, bring that activist focus to the academic as well so that we have a really open conference that's multi-dimensional and isn't just about kind of academics getting up and saying really uh, hard to understand crap <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, more trying to, I mean, that has its place, and, and I am, uh, you know, do, I'm doing a PhD, so I really believe in education, but we want to be able to bridge that that gap there instead of kind of having activists doing this amazing work that isn't being talked about in academia or academic, academics in this amazing research that doesn't filtrate in, infiltrate into how to be productive activists. So, yes, that's where uh, ICAS came from about 10 years ago uh, in a long-winded way. <laughs> Great. Um, so what do you say, I guess, the aims of ICAS is being? Um, I guess the aims are really, well, I can read out our mission statement, which is that we're grounded in animal liberation and we see a revolutionary scholarly research centre located in the community, organised by activists and community organisers, events in critical animal studies, influenced by diversity of liberation movements. So in, uh, in our Oceana Collective, we all have really um, different interests uh, in Canberra, uh, Carolyn, who's one of our collective members, and Lara are both right now really heavily involved with the kangaroo cull up there. Uh, whereas um, we have somebody down here, Nadi, she's got a sanctuary um, that works on a feminist model. Uh, and then for me, I do lots of work around um, not just animals, but queer, queer theory and prisons. And Colin does, in Wollongong, does a lot of work around um, peace and conflict studies. So we have really, just just in our collective alone, we kind of reflect what we try to do in our house, which is to bring different struggles together. So our focus, whilst it is on animal liberation, uh, it's also, it's we don't think that you can have animal liberation, say, under capitalism or under patriarchy. Mm, totally. Um, maybe we might get into that a bit deeper in a little bit, um, a little bit of time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what sort of workshops are happening at the conference this weekend? Oh, we've got heaps of really amazing workshops. Um, and I was thinking about for this program, um, you know, we've got one on called um, Veganity, looking at <coughs> Nick Pendergrass, who's, who's going to be joining our collective. He's looking at uh, the in looking at how veganism and anarchy should kind of come together and the ways in which uh, you can't have um, veganism without anarchy and you can't have anarchy without veganism. So it's a really exciting paper. Yeah. Uh, we've also got, uh, we've got everything from a queer panel, uh, particularly one of the papers on there looking at um, the ways in which trans people uh, face violence and, and looking at similarities between that and animal exploitation. Uh, and we've got a law panel uh, looking at sniffer dogs, um, and then <coughs> we've got a workshop that we're, the Oceana Collective is running on AGAG legislation, which is, um, in a nutshell, basically legislation that not just animal activists but uh, everyone doing activism should be thinking about because it's uh, started in America and started to come here to Australia around um, trying to stop 
uh, to make it illegal to re- to go into factory farms and film. Uh, so the repercussions of that, not just for animal activists, but all activists, is is frightening and, and something we need to be considering heavily across our different activist movements, the way that these laws could be used against us. Mm. So yes, we've got a really um, diverse uh, conference and we've got workshops um, and then also we've got... Uh, a lecture from Dr. Dinesh Wadiwal, who is bringing out a book called The War Against Animals, and he's doing an opening lecture, which is going to already have happened when this show plays, um, unfortunately, but we will record that, uh, looking at animals and capitalism. Okay. Um, and you were saying that it's the third conference. What sort of things have come out of the conferences in the past? Like, um, that I guess, as a movement, the movement can build on, I guess? I think uh, so far we've started to, um, we'll so, I mean, tangibly we've had a publication come out through the Animal Studies Journal, um, trying to bring more of a critical animal studies perspective to that journal. Um, some of the most important stuff that has come out of it, I think, has been people getting to meet each other and network around um, I mean, networking sounds so capitalist, doesn't it? (laughs) But I think it's really important for activists across disciplines and all around Oceania, and we have people from all over the world coming to the conference, getting to meet each other and being able to say, yes, I have these similar ideas, I want to see the end of animal exploitation, but I also want to see the end of patriarchy, and I I want to see the end of all these other things, um, and people being able to... Uh, come together and talk about that and, and workshop ideas of how to change that uh, is, I think, the most exciting thing that could come out of any conference or um, activist movement, being able to start working together. Mm. So that is exciting, and definitely those conversations will be had. Um, and we really push our conference to have real long kind of lunch breaks uh, so that people can meet each other and have those conversations and not just have to sit and listen to people talking the whole time. Yeah, yeah. No, I really like that idea, and I guess that fits in with the idea of it being based in the community that's sort of breaking down that academic and the listener, or you know, the scholar and the reader sort of mm. idea, and broadening it so that everyone can participate. Um, so you mentioned that the opening forum, the opening um, discussion, was going to be recorded. Um, is there anything else that's being recorded, or is there any way that three um, CR listeners can access the recording? Yeah, look, we're going to try and record most of the sessions. Uh, we yeah. will. Um, we have Kate from Freedom of Species from 3CR, uh, you, who will be going around recording lots of sessions and um, be using those for Freedom of Species, but also awesome. um, Progressive Podcasts, which is another cool podcast that 3CR listeners will probably like. Um, they will be recording it as well, and we will be video recording. So that stuff will all go up on our website. Great. And... Um I guess one of the the broader questions that I had in mind, and it sounds like the conference is a way of doing this, but is how do we push animal liberation movements um, to embrace intersectional practices and not just, um, you know, say as a label, I'm an intersectional vegan, but for it Mm. to mean something. Um, Mm. Any thoughts on that? This is such a hard, it is a hard question because also we're, as activists, so stretched trying to do as much as we can um, with, in our kind of current world of, um, you know, neoliberal capitalism. But that's that's why, um, yeah, that's what we really want to focus on with ICAS is finding those ways to do that. I think some of the ways are um, trying to 
talk with other organisations and also, um, but not making kind of veganism, animal liberation, the main message there, but just um, being involved and being part of different groups is really important. Um, so while we have things like um, Kate from 3CR coming to speak to us about uh, how to do uh, community radio because I think things like 3CR are where we uh, get to hear the most amazing things happening in our community. Mm. Uh, so really trying to branch out in different ways through things like community radio is really important. And then also in academia, I mean, I think academics do some really great research and bringing, um, bringing but really encouraging people to get their work out there through academia at the conference uh, also gives them, gives hopefully a chance to build up confidence to go into the academic world and start presenting those findings there. Because there's always, I mean, I've gone to many feminist conferences and been the only person there speaking about animal liberation. And, you know, my, my work's often on animal liberation and, and queer theory. Mm. And, um, and then at the lunch break, there won't be a single vegan thing to eat and everyone will be eating, you know, yeah. dairy and dead animals, which is, of course, so so ironic for a feminist conference. But hopefully, I mean, because I've had this great chance at ICAS to grow in confidence in speaking, um, it, I feel much more confident to go to those feminist conferences and bring animal liberation there. Mm. So, yeah, I think I went off track from your original question. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Because I think one of the things that, um, I mean, it's a bit of a myth that, vegans are all like uh, middle-class white men um, mm. who are like a straight and cis and obviously that's a myth but that's also often the voices that have get the loudest voices within veganism um mm. but i suppose like that was more taking animal liberation to other movements which i suppose mm. a lot of us probably do already but yeah. it seems like you know we're up as against as much of a brick wall when we do that as when we try and bring other things towards like broader vegan movements, which is I guess mm. because they're not based on anything on a political basis, whereas say mm. something like ICAS is, it's very clear about what the aim is. Yeah, yeah, that's why we try to really have um, different, you know, when you look through our schedule, it's, um, it's almost like sometimes I think, oh, where are the animals? <laughs> they're not <laughs> that present here, but I think because a lot of the people that come to ICAS already are on board with animal liberation, already know about um, animal exploitation and a lot of the people that come are vegans, but not always. Um, so a lot of the people that put papers in are coming from that perspective already and trying to, that's their goal is to try and open up uh, the different disciplines that they're part of to make them, um, yeah, to to bring that to veganism and, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, look, it's an uphill battle sometimes. I mean, there is a lot of kind of there is the people that do get the attention often can be um yeah kind of that middle class um white vegans but i think that's changing a lot and and things like icas are hopefully part of trying to um open those discussions up and uh will change the discussion i guess mm. yeah and i guess it's good to see that the same discussions that are happening in um other liberation movements are also happening within the animal liberation movement, um, that mm. idea of intersectionality and of broadening movements and broadening yeah. the um, people involved. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think doing things like ICAS, having that platform where people can speak and, and meet each other and figure out ways to kind of counter the way that capitalism is trying to subsume veganism is really important. We do have um, one workshop on Saturday morning called Vegan Consumerism, which will be, uh, yeah, kind of addressing some of these issues as well. Yeah. 
Well, that all sounds really good. Um, thanks for coming on the air with us. Was there anything else that you wanted to add or anything? Um, so you can go to our website, which is criticalanimalstudies.org, and then you can look up the Oceana uh, uh, Collective from there and get involved either in Oceana if you're interested or internationally. You can join um, ITAS International and you can do things <coughs> with them, like join some of our... Um, we have different collaboratives. I run the Gender and Sexuality Intersectional Co Collaborative, but we have all different ones um, for your interests. Uh, yep. So I really recommend joining us. And um, it's not too late for people to come tomorrow on Saturday to um, just check out the last day of the conference? No, and I mean, Saturday is a really full schedule uh, with some really great stuff. That's when we've got queerings, feminism, intersections of violence, activist engagements, vivisection, aggro. We've got a lot of stuff on that day. Uh, and so, yeah, come along. Um, our, it's a sliding scale from 30 to... Uh, 120 uh, of what you can afford. So, but people won't be turned away if they can't afford anything. Great, and that's at Trades Hall starting in the morning. Yes, Trades Hall starting at 9:30. Great. Um, well, thanks for coming on the air with us. And, thanks for um, having me. Good luck with the conference. Thank you. Thanks. Want to support Tricia's diverse and independent voices? Donate to Tricia's annual radiothon. We still need your support and it's not too late to donate. Donate now by calling 94198377 or donate online at tricia.org.au or post us a check or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. This is... 3CR, the Sewer Show, Squadron, Unwaged Airwaves, the Food Not Bombs edition. And um, being the Food Not Bombs edition, we just heard from Jess, who was a, is a representative from the Institute for Critical Animal Studies, Oceana, who are having a conference that's happening today and tomorrow down at Trades Hall. So um, feel free to you know get along and check it out or to Google the Institute for Critical Animal Studies, Oceana, and have a look to see what's going on. Um, next on the show, we have a rather long interview with um, Van Badham. Van Badham is a writer, activist, playwright, and a um, columnist for The Guardian. So um, to give a bit of background, um, well, the interview is about some abuse that Van has received on social media and um, how this has been prompted by her criticising the Greens' support of pension changes recently but it, the interview is also more broadly about the nature of politics in Australia and the way this ties in with a backlash against women and others challenging stereotypes and challenging masculine identities by speaking up. So it's a bit of a flowing interview that goes for a while, but it's um, in two parts and hopefully um, you'll enjoy the interview. So here it is. I'm here with um, Van Badham, who is a writer, activist, and writer for The Guardian. And um, we're going to be talking a bit about uh, Van's recent experiences on social media and a bit more generally around the um, abuse that women face for speaking up. Um, so how are you doing today, Van? Well, I'm doing all right. It has been a really rough couple of weeks. I mean, it is very difficult when you express an opinion in public for there to be such a public and overwhelming response. And the past couple of weeks have been pretty heavy. Yeah, from um, the posts that I've seen, it 
does look really heavy. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what's been happening and what's the lead up and everything? All right, well, I'll give you some context. I became, um, began my involvement on Twitter in 2009, which seems like another century now. Didn't really understood how it worked. I was living overseas and started using Twitter to get Australian news media and find out what was going on at home. And being quite like a politically minded person and obviously, you know, a lifelong committed, you know, disgusting left-wing anarcho-communist nightmare, I... Uh, you know, found myself engaging in discussions about Australian politics. And in the midst of my sort of Twitter career, I came back to Australia and was obviously just living it 24-7 and became really involved in social media. Long before I worked for The Guardian, I became aware of the phenomenon known as internet trolling. And everybody should know what trolling is, which is, of course, when people to get some kind of emotional response say unbelievable, unanswerable things on the internet using the cover of anonymity to... Usually, anonymity to harass you, although sometimes people do it in public. And it's about getting a reaction. But, of course, the meaning of trolling has changed where it's gone from just getting a reaction to targeting and silencing particularly women and other voices of oppressed communities online. And we've seen some really appalling internet phenomena around trolling. And I look at someone like Anita Sarkeesian, who is the feminist games um, academic. And she writes about uh, the way that women are represented or enfranchised or not enfranchised in the gaming community. And, of course, Anita Sarkeesian has been one of a group of women who are involved in games, um, like Zoe Quinn and Brianna Wu, who have been targeted by uh, internet cranks and trolls to the point where they've had to flee their homes, they've had their personal details, um, like bank account details, home addresses, details of their families uh, spread all over the internet and they've been set up for targeted harassment for saying things like, what would it be like if Sonic the Hedgehog was a woman? And, um, and that whole sort of controversy was known as Gamergate. And it really illuminated to people just how how widespread and how entrenched misogynistic positions are amongst a pretty significant section of the internet community. Because the reality is if you're a woman who expresses an opinion in the internet, um, who, you know, claims a platform in public life, there is an inevitable trolling response. And we've seen the studies that have come back saying, yes, this is a phenomenon that particularly affects women. We've seen studies that come back that say... Um, the, the, the politics uh, around trolling are about silencing and they're about harassment and they're about marginalisation. They're not actually ever really, and this is my opinion, about the issues being discussed. They're about a, like a cultural resentment of women in particular occupying any social space at all. And unfortunately, I mean, as I've progressed in my career and gone from being just some chick on the internet to having a column with The Guardian and enjoying a public profile and going on Q&A and Sunrise and God knows what else, making a menace of myself in public life, and of course, you know, you can tell from the way I speak, I'm quite considered, I do put rather a lot of time and thought into my political positions. I come from this extraordinary academic tradition where we were taught to consider evidence before coming to an opinion which I think has stood me in quite good intellectual stead, if not made me particularly popular with political tribalists. And of late, I have raised some pretty serious concerns, in fact, I'd call it condemnation, of the Greens, the Australian political party, who are associated with a you know, progressive 
position, voting with Scott Morrison, who is of course the architect of Australia's you know dreadful current asylum seeker policy, who is supposedly their great political enemy, the Greens voted with Scott Morrison to cut pensions to 11% of Australian pensioners. It was in return for a $15 a week increase to those who are on a full pension, but part pensioners Overwhelmingly, people like retired teachers and nurses and widows in the family home looking towards, you know, retirements unpartnered and unsupported were losing the assistance of the part pension. Now, the reason why I took that position is because I'm a left-wing person with a class analysis who believes in the welfare state. That's pretty intrinsic to what I consider to be a left-wing position. Now, I voted for the Greens in the past. I handed out very publicly for Adam Bennett last year and I handed out for Trent McCarthy, who was the candidate for Northcote in the state election. And I've, you know, photos of me all over the internet hanging out with Larissa Waters, Lee Wren and, and the rest. But I'm also a democratic citizen and I'm quite avowedly independent. I will support candidates who I think are good, but I, I am not a member of... I find the whole notion of joining a club a, a little bit childish. However... It's not for me. Um, the issue has been that raising criticism of Green's policy resulted in what I can only describe as a tsunami of harassment on Twitter in particular, and also partially on Facebook through people who associated themselves with the Green's position. And it was so eye-opening for me to realise that the kind of treatment that I have traditionally received from right-wing people, you know, attacking my gender as a means of attacking me politically, um, which comes up all the time. And people know this about trolling, that, you know, women are targeted for how they look and, you know, whether men consider them rootable or not. Um, so it's your sexuality and the way you look constantly referred to. And then all of a sudden, from the supposedly progressive side of politics, I receive the same criticism. Diva, hysterical, labour whore, um, and that kind of that kind of stuff, and it was, you know, the the hilarious slash despairing thing about the experience is one. What I actually said about pensions, I don't think many people have the like level of knowledge or nuance of detail around the welfare state, why we defend the welfare state, why pensions are important, why what we really want is a universal pension and universal coverage in order to involve you know, like to involve the state in a, in a conception of the polis as a cradle-to-grave responsibility. Um, that nuance was really not the point. The point was that I had challenged an orthodoxy and I had challenged a tribal identity. And in the same way that I've made that challenge to the right, I had made that challenge of a political party. And the same responses that I get from the right, I was getting from the same kind of people in the progressive community. White, male, lower middle class. And that was what was really illuminating to me, was that the the real issue is, is not the policy detail, it's the fact that a woman is speaking and not doing what she's told. And when a woman makes a challenge to an orthodoxy in particular, it is very, very destabilising for masculinist identities that are based around opposition to female stereotypes. There are rather a lot of men who cannot conceive of their masculinity without comparing it to what they wish to believe women are like. 
And for them to have that sense of social entitlement relies on sort of the, the perpetual discounting of the entire population of women. You know, these are the values of patriarchy that people are born into and indoctrinated with, that if you are a man, you are born superior to the 51% of the population who are weepy, clumsy, emotional, sentimental, romantic, you know, like at, at your sexual disposal, conflicted, unstable, not people who you would trust with power. And of course, when that stereotype of, you know, female powerlessness or helplessness is challenged by someone like me, who's like, well, actually, I'm on top of this discourse and let me give you a hundred reasons why you're wrong, all of which are based in fact. And by the way, I don't care if you like me or want to root me or not, like, you're irrelevant. That's very challenging. And that's when the gendered criticism arcs up. And the gendered criticism, because it is gendered, is revelatory about what the real problem is. Because why would you need to bring somebody's gender into a political discussion unless their gender was actually the problem? Um, that sort of le leads us well into the next sort of thing I was wanting to ask, which was um, what sort of factors do you think make this abuse seem acceptable to people? Um, obviously, you mentioned patriarchy and um, that people have a problem with um, your gender and stepping outside of what they perceive as that role. But obviously that's something that's happening even in left-wing circles as well. Of course. Well, you know, I, I hesitate on using the word left-wing to describe anybody who would commit to cutting pensions. Yep. I'm sorry, but if you attack the welfare state and the principle of universal enfranchisement with, within a, like a cradle-to-grave care you're not actually left-wing. You have to have a class analysis to call yourself left-wing. So we'll call these people progressive because yeah. that's sort of a catch-all for the sort of huggly, warm, fuzzy, small-l liberalism that might think trees are nicer to look at than coal mines. And that's probably the language that the Greens would use themselves, progressive rather than... Well, I mean, it's conspicuous... Yeah, well, it's conspicuous that the Greens don't use words like left-wing or socialist you know, like let alone anything like anarcho or syndicalist or, mm. or communist, then that's not what they are. But the Greens also don't portray themselves as a social democratic party, which I find really interesting, especially in light of their recent economic behaviour and their all-white, all-male, all-middle-class economics team with uh, the former economist for <laughs> Merrill Lynch heading it, um, mm. Senator Wish Wilson, which is amusing uh, for anyone who is on the left. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that you're not spared from the messages of patriarchy and also the great privilege of being a man, you know, a cis man in patriarchy. What wonderful confidence that gives you to be surrounded by cultural messages that reify your right to speak and to act that you don't actually have to earn, that you can be born without enfranchisement. And a lot of people don't want to give that confidence up or to have that basis of unearned privilege exposed or challenged because, oh, my God, if all of a sudden you have to earn your role in public life by being able to prove what you say and nuance your argument and debate intellectually and effectively, well, there'd be rather a lot of men in public life who wouldn't be able to keep up. I mean, it's one thing to have the confidence to espouse total nonsense, and I think we can all identify rather a lot of commentators in public life who have that confidence because of their class, because of their gender, because of, you know, the sexual identity they assume, to speak in that way. Um, but to, to do it the other way around and to detail your argument and make 
you know, make yourself socially useful in service of a bigger vision. I mean, well, well, that's hard and that's very difficult for a lot of people. That makes the job of speaking your opinion a lot more onerous. Wow, I really am in a foul mood, aren't I? It has just been unbelievable. I sent out one tweet saying I was disgusted and appalled that the Greens had voted to, with ScoMo to cut pensions. And on that one tweet, I got two and a half thousand responses. Mm. And on the second tweet, I sent, um, I said, if, Labor, if the Labor Party changed their position on asylum seekers... Like Labor vote ex Labor voters who have started voting Green because of asylum seekers um, would be in a position to go back to Labor because the the Greens would have lost their wedge. That got at last count, I think, about sixteen hundred responses from Greens just going feral, and it it really was it was chilling and and politically isolating and a little bit frightening. This is the Fifth annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters, and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets, and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics, and cutting edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking, and to network with like minded folks. It's free, and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th from 10am till 6pm and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. What do you think is a good way of responding to that? Um, obviously, um, Clementine Ford recently um, had, well, she was banned from Facebook and then reinstated, but for taking a selfie with Fuck You Sunrise mm. written on her chest as a way of responding to um, some victim blaming that was happening around leaked photos. And she copped masses of abuse and like base, lots of other things being sent to her and she responded by naming and shaming. Is that something that you think... Well, I guess there's two points there. Firstly, that the difference between what she experienced and what you assume um, experienced is in just a matter of degree, even though like, no matter what the topic was, like, it's that same sort of misogynistic abuse. Yeah, but, um, and it is a matter of degree. I mean, certainly... And it's happening for the same reason, yep. but obviously the effects are different. Yep. And there is a difference between threatening to rape somebody, and that's happened to me online as well, yep. from various right-wing nutjobs, and merely using their gender as a means of attacking them or diminishing their authority to speak, like being mm. hysterical or a diva or a labour whore or whatever else I've been called lately. Um, there is a difference there. It's a really important difference because one is an intimation of sexual violence. That's a whole other category. Mm-hmm. And I certainly wouldn't want to diminish um, the the potency of that kind of threat by mm-hmm. saying, oh, yeah, it's just the same. I think we can understand, though, that they come from the same, same values yeah. and they come from the same patriarchal social order. And the absolute unwillingness of a privileged group to give up that privilege which is unearned 
you know. And the social media has been fascinating in that it's provided not only... I mean, it has provided an opportunity for feminists to speak without an immediate threat of physical harm. And this is what I think, you know, is one of the really fascinating things about internet culture. I have a lot more confidence to speak on the internet because I can control my physical environment when I engage so I don't have to look out for potential violence. In the way that when I went to the No Room for Racism demonstration in Melbourne, the last anti-fascist protest that we had here, or like big one at Federation Square, I didn't have that protection. And I was physically threatened and physically frightened all day because extremely large men with swastikas on their necks were mm. shouting this kind of abuse within feet from where I was standing and ripped up my placard and stood over me. And that does affect the way that you engage with social life. Yeah. When I'm on the internet, I'm in my apartment through three levels of security doors and I can be confident in expressing an opinion because physically someone cannot get me in the next few seconds. What that means is not only that I have a greater sense of boldness, but also that anonymous cranks are not protected by social, pro like, uh, sorry, uh, liberated from social protocols, such as, you know, the witnessing of other people who could identify and condemn them socially, that enables them to say things that I don't know if they would, they would feel they could get away with in everyday life. So in the way that groups often, um, especially progressive communities, police engagement, you know, around language, around uh, the way that people are allowed to speak and enfranchising people to feel safe, on the internet, those protocols don't need to apply. Mm. And because, especially if you're tweeting or engaging under a false name, you're liberated completely from... Uh, a sense of responsibility for your own behaviour either because what are the consequences going to be? You get a certain sentiment out of your system. It's actually more of an accurate representation, I think, of what people really are and what they really stand for. And there is, a, a, and there is a, an amazing light that gets shone in your eyes around what are the true social problems with the broader notion of discourse in in speaking specifically of this country who gets to speak who doesn't get to speak what are the prevailing tensions within that discussion they're revealed on social media there are a lot of men who really do not like women speaking and that's what it gets down to yeah um so obviously that anonymity makes it harder to hold people to account so unless you track them down like i think um maybe the school students that got suspended from school for harassing Clementine Ford, um, that anonymity didn't help them. But I guess ultimately, how, how do you think we can respond to this? And how can people support um, people who are being targeted and harassed on Twitter and other forms of social media? Um, because obviously, even though, as you're saying, it's the you have these walls of security that harassment still breaks you down even though it's not in person some of the most amazing things that have happened to me on social media is discovering those people who will call it call out that about that behavior and stand up against it and and will defend you and 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 will police people to the best of their ability there's an amazing account on twitter um there used to be a really terrible troll called greg greg jessup his name was and Greg Jessup used to send things that were things I couldn't even repeat that were so disgusting with rape analogies and real details of physical violence. 
And someone set up this account called, he swapped around the G and the J, so it was like Jeg Grissop or... And this account, which is patterned with rainbows, pops up occasionally when you're being really heavily trolled. If whoever runs the rainbow account sees you being trolled, they'll interfere and go, oh, don't worry about him. He's silly. I think you're beautiful and everyone loves you. (laughs) And we'll like paste rainbows and pictures of unicorns like all over the conversation. That's such a beautiful thing to do. And it's such a, you know, it seems so trivial and ridiculous, but within that kind of context where you're like, Jesus Christ, like, do people really hate me this much? Um, To know that people love you enough to make that kind of gesture is really important. And the other thing, too, is that I've met some of my closest colleagues and comrades in social media. People have become my dearest friends based around, like, you know, a sense of shared value. And that's one of the, you know, you wanting to do this interview with me because you've seen what I've been going through is really meaningful to me because it it, en- it enables me to have courage that my complaint is legitimate. And, of course, women are told all the time to, you know, settle down and pipe down and be quiet. And it's, you're just making a mountain out of a molehill and you're overreacting and you're being hysterical, Diva, and the rest of it. We're constantly fed those messages that, you know, our entitlement to reject behaviour which is silencing and oppressive is out of... We're out of line, you know, and it's old-style victim-blaming. Mm. So these gestures around the discourse of going, no, there is legitimacy, there is protocol, this is not okay, this is not acceptable, this is a manifestation of patriarchy, you know, in the immediate term, they're really great. One of the things that's been so hard to deal with, especially now that I've been receiving sort of targeted abuse from explicit supporters of a political party is that no one from that political party by one person has gone, this is out of line. You know, I didn't see people go, that's unacceptable. Mm. Like, don't speak to Van like that or don't speak to anyone like that. Your behaviour is gendered and whether you're on side or not, that's not the point. That silence is very difficult to deal with because it illuminates not a legitimate political commitment but just the associations of tribalism, and that's really boring. And I should point out, you know, that I'm, I'm an equal opportunity, like, critic. Like, I criticise everybody. Mm. I have, you know, deeply held left-wing beliefs about democracy being about participation and grassroots collectivism and community enfranchisement and participation on a direct person-to-person level. I've never had the belief in political parties to lead me because that's I don't I don't validate systems of authority or hierarchy. I don't want anybody to lead me. I want to be a part of a community that makes decisions that my servants in government, because they're enjoying the privilege of government, enact on the basis of community will. I mean, we've seen in this country, for a really good demonstration about what I mean, we've seen in this country unprecedented change around the issue of marriage equality. And that hasn't come because a political party led the marriage equality campaign. That's a sentiment that has come from the people. Dedicated activists making powerful statements within community groups and communities speaking to other communities and, you know, persuading the population of a superior moral value of inclusion. That's extraordinary. You know, that's amazing. And that's actually how democracy works. And now you have people in Parliament who have to respond to the change sentiment of the community. That's how it is supposed to work. But we defer these, you know, leadership, not actual leadership and authority positions. We sacrifice our leadership to defer it 
to others in political parties and, you know, like barnacleized identities attached to the ship of, you know, effectively what are individualist careerist projects pursuing power. And and people become so invested in that tribalism that any kind of criticism is threatening or something that they feel they can't criticise. It's been really interesting. Somebody made the point to me that the response of Green supporters around me criticising them on pensions is word for word the response of Labor Party members with me criticising them on asylum seekers. Oh, well, you know, they must be right. They're probably doing it for really good reasons, you know, which is a complete abrogation of responsibility. Like, citizenry in a democracy has a responsibility to analyse policy positions relentlessly to ensure that the policy is being served properly. And this is, you know, just ludicrously frustrating to see, you know, silence, silencing, tribalism, you know, and the worst kind of sort of discursive gang warfare get played out. And, you know, this is not about me or my feelings. This is about tendencies within democracy that are weak and weakening for the community. Mm. Um, Maybe just like a a final question in terms of responses again. Um, In the UK, for instance, I've read of people being jailed for comments on Twitter if they've made racial abuse, particularly towards footballers and towards other people. Do you think that that kind of legalised response is something that we should be trying to aim for or do you think um, there are other responses that would be better, Um, like, say, more community-based that would be more effective rather than just putting someone in prison? Well, obviously, (coughs) obviously, for me, the solution is consciousness raising around inclusion, you know, and winning the war. And feminism, I genuinely believe, is winning because... Otherwise, the the enemy would not be arcing up so much and be so frightened. But feminism has been a consistent, explicit, organised, community-based political project for a very long time. You know, that has fought through the activism of everyday life to recognise that women are autonomous agents of their own destiny and individuals who are not a homogenised mass of stereotypical behaviours based on, you know, bits of their biology. And we've made that argument consistently and we have persuaded others to accept the moral validity of that position. Ultimately, that is the main game and that is the project, is to change people's minds. In the meantime, it is very, very hard for me to not, to not feel the, the terror, and it is terror, of physical threats when they're made against me. And when I get death threats, they are frightening, and I'm going to admit that. I don't know who the enemy is. I don't know where they look like. I don't know where they're coming from. And I've spoken in interviews before of going, I'm now so used to trolling, I can't actually discern what's a legitimate threat from an illegitimate threat. And sometimes I worry that because I'm just like, oh, yeah, whatever, they've threatened me with you know, gang rape by German shepherds or whatever, again, that I won't be able to see a genuine threat if it's coming for me. Um, And through, you know, the advice and support of other feminists in particular and friends, I have started reporting things to the police and and building a file because I have to think about my own physical safety and protection is a right and something that I have to defend. I can't take that lightly because would I want any other woman to be subjected to that kind of harassment? No, I wouldn't. And when it comes to threats of violence, yes, 
that I think that there should be a, a justice process around that because those people are dangerous. They affect mm. the ability of you to function in society in the same way that any other criminal does. You know, like you can't enforce terror on an individual or a community that affects the way that they can live their life and not be punished for that. You should be punished for that. You should be taken out of a free and, um, you know, like you, you should lose your freedom for attempting to take freedom away for others because freedom must be a mutually assured compact. And certainly I do support that. I absolutely support that because I have a right to be safe and so does everybody. Mm. Okay. Um, that's probably all we have time for. Uh, Was there anything else that you wanted to add at all? I would like to just remind people that even though I'm, I'm in quite a dark place at the moment, I genuinely believe that people are good and I believe the most, you know, the most powerful political act is an honest conversation about the truth with other people. And the truth is this. Ultimately, you believe that either everyone is born, born equal, that we all have the right to uh, an equal opportunity of quality of life based on our ability to support, encourage and love one another. You know, that's the ideal utopian vision as far as I'm concerned. And I don't think that's an extremist position. I think that's probably the most, you know, commonly held political belief in the world. You can say that you believe that, but you actually have to live that in a process of the activism of everyday life. And that's an ongoing critique about privilege and authority and entitlement and confidence. And it's also an ongoing systems check about how your behaviour impacts on other people and whether it's impacting in a positive way or a negative way. You know, the conversation has to be had about where do you go as, a, as an individual within a community in terms of the way that your attitudes equalise opportunity or diminish them. And I think a lot of people maybe aren't making the links that they're actually part of the problem. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.